Greetings. I'm Addie Bay, and welcome to the first Let's Talk Race Now show. I'm so excited because my first guest is not only an exemplary man and community leader, but he is the founder of One Blood Movement of Unity Organization, and he hosts the One Blood Eye-Opener Tuesday show talking about race and community relations and a lot more. Before I introduce him, let me share my reasons for this show. Everybody has an opinion about race, race relations, but who can tell us how we can get along with each other? This show talks to everyday people regardless of their status in the community, their position, their ethnicity, because I want to hear their voice. I want to understand their truth. So let's talk race now. Today we will hear from Mr. Fred Foreman. Welcome, Fred Foreman. Thank you, thank you, Miss Addie. I call you Addie Truth. It is a blessing, it's an honor. I, I just um, I'm excited. You have got me going again. I love it. Thank you for uh, bringing me on. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, it, my, it is my honor because we have uh, kind of hung out on, on YouTube before, and uh, we're more than just uh, uh, partners. We are friends. But let me give a little background about Mr. Corbin. He was born in Raleigh and raised in he has two brothers and is blessed to still have his father with him. Fred has been married almost 20 years and is the proud father of four wonderful offspring. Indeed. He graduated from Clayton High School, served in the Army, and graduated from Computer Learning Center in Maryland. Fred has achieved the coveted certification as an asphalt engineer in North Carolina. Today, Mr. Foreman is a motivational speaker. He continues working in Johnson County, working with the older uh, youth, and for 20 years has coached football. So I thank you again for joining me. You're more than welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm ready to get it. <laughs> All right, so let's talk race now. Indeed. Let's discuss your familiar, Mr. Foreman. Tell us about the world that you grew up in. What were your influences? How did you spend your time? What makes you smile when you think of growing up? Who were your friends? Tell us about your familiar. Oh man, it's it's, it's a beautiful thing for me. My father um, always one of the, the most key lessons he always taught me was you never uh, it's not see color, but never never uh, disrespect the color of someone's skin. Uh, always enjoy it. Think it's beautiful. It's it's something that people are, and you don't have to be what your color is. You just have to be human. Uh, growing up was was um, was when we moved to Johnson County, it was a challenge. Uh, 
I always considered it love, but it was a challenge because um, anything that you are able to grow through uh, is love on the end of it, as long as you grow through it. You know, if you just continuously go through it, then you, you don't learn anything. So it's kind of hard to put any love in there because you're not learning. But if you're actually growing, or you, you learn something from it, you learn to love it. But my mother and my father, my mother was very, very, what they call fair skin, very light-skinned woman. Uh, my dad was a very dark-skinned man. And um, so when we grew up, uh, color, different colors didn't really affect me. Because uh, I always seen my mom and dad hang with uh, white folks. I've always seen them hang with um, black folks. And I've never seen the change or the shift in their attitudes when they hung with either or. Uh, my dad would, would tell me stories about some of the things that he grew up with and some of the times for segregation in schools and when everything was starting to come together. Told me some horror stories, some war stories they had to go through, but his thing was he was not gonna let color dictate the way he treated people. And that's what he taught me. Uh, and that stuck with me for many, many years. Uh, our next door neighbors, you know, I never knew his mom was white until I was in my 30s. And I'm serious. She had a, she, she had a, you know, some white people have a really good tan, you know, <laughs> they just, they just have a really, really good tan. And um, Miss Jennifer never, I never, she never acted, um, I guess, you know, the stereotype uh, white. And she, she never acted out of pocket with my, my with my parents. Uh, the father was black. My best friend was Quincy. And never knew into my early 30s that his mom was actually a white woman. And um, that 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 resonated with me because nothing was never treated as so as racism. I didn't really meet racism until I until I um, until we moved to Johnson County. That was the story. What I always tell with it, where I moved, we came in and went to class the first day, and I met the uh, teachers in the class, and the, the teacher had put crayons on everybody's uh, desk, and I was just trying to break the ice since I was a new kid on the block. And I went in there and I grabbed the crayon, I put them in my sleeve, and I was gonna play a joke on the teacher. And uh, when I went, I called the teacher over and I, so I said, I, I don't have any crayons. So she's opened up the desk, she's looking everywhere, trying to find this crayon, she's going about halfway crazy. I take the crayons out of my sleeve and I just tap her on the shoulder. And I said, are you looking for these? And she looked at me initially with a smile, knowing that it was all, uh, you know, it was nothing uh, harmful, but, that quickly changed when the three little white girls got up and said, that's stealing. So it wasn't the three little white girls that, that altered it or, or changed my perspective of white folks. It was, um, or learned that was what racism was, racism was about. It was the teacher shifted from a smile to a face to a boy, we don't do that here. Uh, sit down and don't do anything with the rest of the day. So it was that, I never wanted anybody else in life to feel that belittled or demoralized. And so I took, a, I took that oath to, uh, to myself and to the rest of the people of the world to always fight, always fight, uh, just to love someone. And, and it's, it sounds simple, but that's, that, to me, that is the hardest thing for people to do in this world is to really just love one another. Because that's pretty love. much how... Mm -hmm. oh, oh, go ahead. Because love is a word yeah. that we throw around, mm -hmm. but we don't hold it in our hand and cradle it right. as it deserves. 
Uh, that is an interesting introduction to racism when you grew up initially in a home and in a community that shielded you somewhat and taught you values that we like to associate with behaviors getting along and respecting each other. So would you say that that was your familiar when you think back on your childhood, the things that you enjoy? Tell me about playing in the street. Tell me about the things that you saw when you went outside the door. When, when we got outside the box, I should say, um, you know, when I got away from Quincy and, and we moved to Johnson County, and, and I, I realized that there were so many kids in the school that did not look like me. It was a culture shock for me, actually, because I'm really from Worthdale, uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. And if anybody knows, that is a dominant black area. And uh, my people are from the beach area. So you, you said a proper word, I mean, a good word while I go kind of shelter. That beach uh, area, it's everybody, it's like California. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're at, everybody gets along. That's the from the beach. Uh, and then I grew up in that kind of setting in Raleigh. And when I moved to Johnson County, you had the blacks that sit on the one side of the lunchroom. <laughs> you had the whites that sit on the other side of the lunchroom. Cultures, one, I wouldn't build that way. And but two is the first time I've ever seen anything like that. And I'm like, and I'm really struggling with how this works because I've seen the teachers sit on one side, the black teachers sit on one side, I've seen the white teachers sit on one side, and, and that was the communication that they have, you know. So I was my thing was, well, when are they planning to, to come together? Because in the classroom, it's I'm in there with a bunch of blacks, with a bunch of whites. So it's only one setting that we can actually be together. It, it, it threw me off. It was a culture shock. Yeah. That's interesting because uh, you have spent your adult life trying to bring those groups together. So now we're understanding that this started at a very young age and, uh, and it has its challenges. So who were the influencers in your life? Oh man, it was it was um one of them was Mr. Overton. Of course, my father has always been influenced. I never um, my father is, is great. He's I'm one of those guys that's been rare that to um you know how they get on TV after they made it NFL, NBA, uh, all sports, and the, the first thing they say is, "I man, I thank my mom." I'm gonna tell you something. I, I told my sons if you get up on TV and you made it. First thing to come out of you is I thank my mom. <laughs> we're gonna have some we're gonna have some issues when we, when we get back. <laughs> but, but I say that because it's, it's the relationship. The relationship mm -hmm. that and, and that's what sculpted my life. But uh Mr. Overton was another, he was a he was a, a mixed teacher. Uh Mr. Penn Cassidy was my football coach. He was a white male. Uh uh Mr. Haley what was a white male as well. These are guys that uh, really, really pushed me in a great direction of continuously being exactly who I was. A lot of the uh, teenagers uh, at that time was trying to shift me 
They wanted me to sag my pants. They wanted me to look, look the look. Uh, they wanted me to be on their side. Blacks is what I'm saying. They wanted me to be on their side. And um, these teachers in my life would always promote and say, yo, Fred, you're you. You're totally different. You, you have a different MO. You have a different demeanor. When you walk in the door, things change. The whole atmosphere changes. Continues to be in that person. So when those men kept um, pushing that in my life, it 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 kept me just like the screen is split. Mm -hmm. It kept me in in between the screen. Like and, and and I stayed between the blacks and the whites. It became the homecoming king of a dominantly white school. Prom, everything that was popular, is who I was uh, in my schools. I was the eighth grade um, class president in a dominantly white school. So I stayed in between. In other words, I stayed me. I grew up Fred Foreman and later became senior. And that was the uh, motivation. It was from those, those men. That's a wonderful experience to share. And we don't hear this enough, especially when we're talking about race relations. Right. Because what I am picking up is that in terms of people defining you, what they expected of you, there were Blacks in the home, there were Blacks in the community, there were Whites in the community, all defining you. And your solid foundation allowed you to define yourself with those influences. But we understand that that can be difficult in a world, in a country, in a community that focuses so much on race and the need to fit in. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you were able to negotiate that. Were you active in church? Uh, what were the community influences? Uh, we're very, very active in church. Uh, and I used to go to Piney, Johnson Piney Grove, the church I grew up in, in, in Clayton, uh, the west side of Clayton. Uh, very great church. Uh, it's, it's dominantly black, not, not, not very diverse at all. But um, just being involved in learning who God is and, and who God is in my life, that, that sculpture me. That was my foundation. That was that's my go back to. You know, the Bible says, you know, train up a child in the way they should go. In other words, plant the seed. Plant the seed and when they when they go out in the straightaway, they'll come back. They'll, they'll come back to their familiar. Growing up in Johnson County though was it, it was almost a nightmare, but at the same token, I was foundated in God. And God founded and accepted to me. So the key for me was, is really just becoming myself. And already was Fred. Fred was, is just a dynamic dude. And I'm not boisterous, but he, everywhere he goes, it's a magnet. People just come from different directions. No matter who they are, no matter what color, race, or creed, they just come in. My thing was what I learned in life is just how to, exactly who they are. So once I started understanding exactly who I was, I was able to understand exactly who these other people were. Racism 
was a big, huge thing. There were certain places we were forbidden to go in Johnson County. I'm a little, I'm cut from a different cloth. I don't care. I didn't care nothing about that. Hanging in trees, all the stories. Um, if they find, they're going to beat you. You better come correct if you think you're going to find me and beat me and hang me in a tree. Uh, you better have all your ducks lined up. You better have all your dogs. And I'm talking about every bit of it. But that was my mentality. Uh, that was my demeanor. I would, um, when I walked in, it was, I demanded respect even at an early, early age. That come from the church. That came from the community. Um, we all I always shared uh, another church with, shared with another church. Uh, my buddy Josh Pierce, my next door neighbor, we grew up together, and he was a white male. So I would always go to that church too for Bible study, uh, for VBS, vacation to Bible school. Uh, we would go there, and that's when I learned white culture. And I know that sounds completely crazy, but when I learned theirs at their church, how they do, how they shout, how they praise God, how they read the word, how they understand the word, how they get their revelations. I go back to our church. I understand the way they, uh, we, us uh, a black folks, understand the way that we receive the word, that we, uh, the way we share the word, the way we shout, the way we praise. It's very different, but the understanding was the same. And that's what kept me grounded. Grounded is the word that keeps coming back to my mind as you discuss your experiences, that yeah. having an understanding of who you are and where you are in this world allows you to have a foundation. And today, uh, I am perplexed about whether our young people growing up, black, white, uh, Latinas, uh, a world in which the definitions are blurred. Yeah. Uh, do you see this as something positive or something that may be problematic in terms of grounding? Uh, I think half and half, to be honest with you. Because the kids that I coach, we can even tell the difference in the shift with them. Uh, four years ago, we started what we call flag football. And, and I told the guys, I said, this is a bad idea. And they was like, why? I said, because you're going to put us four years behind. In other words, these kids are going to play flag football for four years before they get to make contact. So their first contact is not going to be until eight years old. Uh, nine years old, so nine, yeah, my nine, ten. So nine years old is going to be their first contact sport. When my when I, I first put my son in it, I started him hitting at three years old. So by the time he was five years old, he was already used to hitting. So the, the way I'm sculpting that thing is the you got this half and half. You got people that are already you know built, come cut from the same cloth. They're already built for promotion. They're already built to be demeaned. They're already built to have respect. And then you have these ones that you got to drill in for years before they, before they grasp it, before they achieve it. The thing with racism right now with our kids is they're seeing a whole lot more uh, uh, racism. But the, the niche of it is 
they're so young, the parents are so young now. And it's that new generation that is not feeling racism at all. They can't stand it, they hate it, they dislike it, they disagree. But the niche of it is, they don't understand where it comes from. And that's their problem. Uh, it's, it's, it's not that they don't have love for different races and different people. They don't understand what their people did. And that's their issue. Because some of them believe it, and some of them is like, that couldn't have been true. And then some is like, well, we didn't do it. So don't treat me that way. I'm going to treat you better than my ancestors treated you because they did it. I didn't do it. So I'm going to make up. That's kind of the wrong, in my eyes, it's the wrong attitude. Uh, we've talked about it on my show plenty of times. And, and you got to know where you come from to know where you're going. You got to know your history. And a lot of these cats don't even, they don't, they don't want to know their history because it's so painful. So they get caught up in that blend of, of I, I, I don't want to do it, but I have to do it. And, it. and it just pushes them in a different direction. That's why I say it's half and half. You have your half that will excel and will learn from people like me and you. And then you have your other half that just, they, 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 they'll get it eventually. I hear what you're saying, and I am wondering who you're specifically focusing and talking about. Are you talking about black students? Are you talking about white students? Are you talking about ethnic students in terms of not getting it and in terms of not accepting that we didn't uh, do this to your people and therefore we shouldn't be held responsible? Where did how does that progress the conversation? Majority of the ones that, that don't know or we didn't do this to your people, that those are the young white folks. That that's that that's that style. The ones that really don't know no better and don't want to learn and get educated, that's the black folks. Sally said. Uh this you know that what's the old saying? If you if you want to hide something from anyone, especially a black person, put it in the book. Uh sad, but it's true. <laughs> And that's that's where we're at with that. We, so here's where Fred comes in, or one blood, I should say. I, I get right in the middle, as always, and gain an understanding of what do they understand? What exactly do you understand about racism on both sides? And then I blend them together. And do I see that progressing? Do I see it getting a higher level of life? I think it's going to take some time. I think it's going to take some time. It has to begin somewhere. And it has to begin where it is effective because um, we can sit them down in the classroom and lecture to them and they will get up and uh, turn their phone on and forget everything you've said. But when you challenge them and you pull out of them, what is your understanding and how do we address the issue? And what are the issues? Mm-hmm. Are you finding that young people are having more difficulty accepting racism as being factual? I do. I really do. And, that, and that's not my little ones. Um, I'm, I'm talking about my, uh, the ones that are 23, about 30, probably about 33, that range. The younger ones, they're not, they're not bred it yet. 
So if they're still seeing, uh, they don't see the color yet. They don't, they don't, it's not been identified. But the, the, the generation that's between the 20, I say between 20 and 33 range, those are the ones who are, are have that level where they they don't want no parts of racism, period. And which from their end is a good thing. And you, and some people would say that's a great thing, but at the same token, if they don't understand what happened uh, when they go into certain, like, say like the Karens of the world, when they come into those situations, they really don't know what to do. And the reason being is they don't never have understanding. They don't go back and read their history. They don't go back and, and, and research. And that's that's the issue right now. That's a real problem. Even though they're showing love, they don't want it. They, I mean, they and, and I love that fact. But when they get into a situation where they have to choose a side, they don't know what to do. And that's what we that's what we we're, we're um that's what we're failing at towards uh towards a generation. Uh and I say mine, I won't say yours, but I say my generation. I think that's where we're failing at because we're not teaching enough, we're not showing enough, we're not giving enough examples. And we might not be doing it the right way. So it's always, you know, I might have to research some more ways of uh, communication to get through. That's very interesting because uh, the conundrum for this is, oh, wouldn't it be a wonderful world when our children are judged by the content of their character instead of the color of their skin? And so as they demonstrate that I am, I am accepting my place uh, based on my character, and we remind them that, wait a minute, you have a race issue as well. The conundrum here is that as long as people see you in America as a one particular race, and they are going to respond to you, react to you based on that race. Mm -hmm. Therefore, how do we as parents arm them with what they need to understand and survive. I think that's what I'm hearing from you. But let me also say that there was a time when, when my parents were being raped, and this was during uh, Jim Crow and um, segregation. The elders didn't talk about slavery. The elders didn't tell stories about uh, how people defined them. What they did is they filled their heads with what you have the potential to be. Yeah. So you have a, a school of thought that said, if we just focus on your potential, and not spend a lot of time talking about how those people over there feel about you, then there is a grounding there as well. What do you think? Uh, I, 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 I don't want to say, I want to say it, but I just don't want to disrespect anyone. Uh, I think you give, you give a false hope because it's not reality. And when you focus on one thing of life, 
there's so much more that's on the outskirts of that one thing in life. That's why I didn't put one blood inside of the church. Because uh, it's not it, one blood is outside the box. And when you have a one thought saying, I'm going to focus on making sure your life is, is, is great. Don't focus on what they got going on over there. Focus just primarily on you, what you got going on. You might need what they got going on one day. And when it approaches you, you won't understand it because you never gave it time. Uh, and that's, it, it, you know, a lot of elders, especially in the black community, is so secretive and it's damaging to the ones, especially my generation, because there are sicknesses that we need to know about. There's funds that's out there that we need to know about. There's a lot of land that's out there that we need to know about. There's a lot of cousins uh, that we shouldn't intermingle with intimately that we need to know about. So the secrecy of going one direction, I think that's a false, you know, I don't think that's a good idea. Um, that's just my personal opinion, but I don't think that's a good idea. I, I think you needed to it to express it from all formalities. Uh, you need to bring every direction in. There's, you know, you got east, west, north, south. Well, if I'm only going north, but one day I need to go south, but I only know north, um, I'm going to have a hard time. I'm going to get frustrated. So I'm going to act out my frustrations on the south because I never understood it when I was growing up. And those frustrations could be anger. They, they could be hatred. They could be, uh, it could be love or it could be, um, be anything but the opposite. And I think you're hurting yourself when you just go one direction. Excellent point. And uh, forearmed and forewarned. Yeah. Uh, being prepared for all situations because there's nothing worse than needing something when you need it and not having it. Yeah. Woo. <laughs> <That's true>. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Foreman, let me ask about racism and experiences outside of North Carolina. You lived a few years in Arizona. Have you experienced racism in other places in America? Oh man, I, I have. Uh, Arizona was Arizona was a very nice, very beautiful area. Uh, a lot of great people. Seriously, um, the, the 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 Mexican culture, heavy. Mexican culture is very heavy. Uh, Latino, I should say, uh, or I don't. Know, I just want to be politically somewhat correct, but um, the Mexican family and the Latino family are so their culture is so heavy. In Arizona, and it's a beautiful culture. Um, the the but the one the one thing that I witnessed that was such racism. My wife, I had to take her to the hospital one one evening, and we went in there, and I'm I'm tired. Uh, I worked a lot, and I had to take her in the evening after I got off work. And normally, when you go to that hospital in Sierra Vista, you're there for about eight nine hours out the gate. So when we went there, and I'm there in the evening, I get there by eight. I'm not leaving to about two, two, three, sometime four in the morning. Got to be up at six to go to work. Um, we went in there one evening. It was about 11 at night. And this little young white kid was giving this white lady a hard time. And then he pushed her. Well, I'm asleep. I ain't going to lie to you. Knocked out. Gone. Uh, my, my wife is nudging me, telling me, hey, 
get, get that boy. He, he just pushed that lady. I look back and I'm like, woman, I am asleep. Whatever they got going on over there, let, let them have what they got going on. I ain't got nothing to do with that. And, but, and then he, he actually, he swung on it. And that, at that point in time, that got my attention uh, because the push wasn't that violent. Uh, but the swing, that was a little more aggressive. So I said, all right, let me, let me go chit-chat with the fellow. So I, I, I grabbed him, I put him up against the wall, and I explained to him very nicely, calm as I could. And I said, brother, I'm over here. I got my wife in the hospital, and I'm asleep. <laughs> I'm tired and chilling. You over here bothering this other lady, and I, have no, I don't know what the situation is. I don't want to know. But there's one thing you're not going to do is put your hands on a woman, especially not in my presence, in a wrongful way. You're going to calm down. You're going to chill. And I'm going to sit back down. I'm going to take that nap and wait for the doctor to call. That's just how it's going to play out. If you're going the other direction, you're going to have to leave these premises. And I'm going to take you there. So security is in there. Security is watching. And, and they see the whole thing play out. Remind you, security didn't step up. Some odd reason I became security because of my wife nudging me. Then um, security calls uh, calls the uh, law enforcement, calls the police. All right, white police walks in. Now the situation's handled. It's it's uh, everything's diffused. The 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 the, the, the white fellows over there sitting down. The other white family is uh, getting registered or triage, whatever whatever the situation was. I mean, whatever they're doing. The white police police officer walks in. I'm the only black. In me and my wife in that uh, uh, waiting room, the security guard is expressing and explaining the situation as the white cop walks in. Do you know the white cop being like me? And out of all people, and the security guard is, and, and the white cop, I mean, he, his eyes on me the whole time since he walks in. He comes right around in my chair and says, sir, stand up. I need to talk to you. No, nah, you, you don't have no conversation at all. What do we need to talk about? Well, you're here bothering folks and, and you're causing disruption. The security guard is like, sir, you have the wrong man. I'm not even talking about him. He has nothing. He was the one that defused the situation. The white cop wasn't hearing it. Sir, you're going to have to get up. Now you're tweaking my nerves. And this is where I told you a long time ago, I used to be a little different. So I'm a carrier, uh, a concealed carrier, always always have been. Um, and I, I had to express to the, to the office, I said, sir, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. If I get up, it's going to be something. And, I, and I'm not even going to play with you. And he puts his hand on his gun. And I said, look, I'm going to tell you again. If I get up, it's going to be something. And I'm, I promise you. So I put my hand on mine. I said, you carry and I carry. So let's not get foolish right here, right? Not at all. That's when the security guard stepped in between us. I'm still sitting down. He steps in between and says, sir, you have the wrong guy. You're out of, you're out of order. I would like for you to leave the premises. That was the, that was the incident, the race incident that I went through in Arizona. And I really wanted, I, honestly, I wanted a taste of that cop. I'm not lying. Uh, that's you why. Escalate. I, I, want, I want the taste of it, but 
that's why I do the shows now uh, between the cops and law enforcement community is for that particular reason. It's, it's what I know I've been through and what I know I could have escalated that even further. I could have took that to a whole nother level, uh, but I chose not to. But as a man, I let him know you, you're in the wrong and you're stepping to me the wrong way. It could have been a whole different approach. Uh, and that's why I do the shows because we, we need to know how to approach it. You never know, you don't know what kind of day I was having. That's right, but by the grace of God. And of- we hear reports on the outcome, so-and-so killed, so-and-so in prison, so-and-so. And at the same time, when we are in trouble, we don't hesitate to call 911 mm-hmm. and expect an officer to come and put his life on the line again, not knowing what to expect. And so there has to be consideration, and we have to hear the stories of how the uh, security guard came forth. I believe that there are more honorable people in the world than the ones who get the airtime. I do, too. I do, too. (laughs) So we've talked about race. We've talked about racism. We've talked about so many things. Tell me, Mr. Corbin, do you really believe that humans can overcome racism and ethnicity hate? I think it's a great challenge, but uh, the good Lord said there will always be poor among you, and he wasn't talking about financial. I don't think we're ever in hate. I don't think we're ever in racism uh, because of that scripture. Uh, There's so much poor-minded people out there and poor-spirited people. They just, they're going to keep passing that same spirit along for as far as they can can do it. Uh, I think the day that we change the uh, the Constitution will be the day that we start moving in a great direction of changing uh, the, the mindset of people to, ch- to take out racism. Uh, what I teach my kids, uh, all the ones I mentor, is do not allow skin color to dictate the way you treat people. How long that would take to get around the world? I don't know. Uh, I know it's a lot of us doing what I'm doing. so. Do I think it would end um, all the way? I, I don't know. I, I hope, but I, but I don't know. I think it's going to be a strong, I think we'll get close because generations are getting better. Uh, they're learning. If you're the end, I only can hope. I only can hope that honest perspective. Yeah. I asked my guests to think about five things that they believe can impact improving race and ethnic relations. What five things do you think would be significant? Okay, that's a good one. <laughs> um, unity would be my first one. And 
I don't mean uniting with other folks. I mean uniting with yourself. Uh, you have to have an understanding of yourself completely before you can understand anybody else. That's that's that should be a law. It's, maybe I create a proverb for that or something. But understanding is uh, unity to yourself is, is that's going to be a key one. Um, outreach, outreach is going to be one. We uh, we we have to educate our children. We have to educate even ourselves. Uh, and we have to educate the ones who don't know. Like I say, if, you, if you're consistently going north, you, you don't know what east and west is going. So uh, once you finally meet east and west and south, you're gonna there might be some discrepancy, or you might fall in love. I don't know, but um, uh, that's a good one to go. A big one for me is communication. Communication is the key to life. To me. Uh, everything that you do, whether it's picking up a piece of paper, is a communicated act. So the more we talk, the more we, we uh, communicate with one another, the more we talk, the more we, we share stories, the more, because a lot of people don't even know, I don't think I've shared that story with you from Arizona, uh, as long as we've known each other, but the outcome was uh, was a great one because the security guard, he's the honorable one in this situation. Uh, so communication is, is a key, that's a big one. Um, fourth one would be, uh, definitely, let me see, what, what's a good fourth one? My last one is going to be a great one, but the fourth one, um, I would definitely, just add, I think I'm going to have to do just love for four and five. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's big enough for, for two. It's big enough for two. <laughs> <laughs> Love is huge for me. Um, I just, I, I, I just, I, I personally believe uh, on a personal note, that's how I made it through all my endeavors of life was, was love. It was, it's, it's a, it's, it's a saying that somebody's praying for you and you never know it. To me, that's love because something is happening that you have no idea. Uh, what Christ did was the ultimate love. So to me, love covers a multitude of sin. That's in the word. If it covers a multitude of sin, sin is the most, that's what's wrong in the world. That's you know what's considered bad and counts marks against you in life in general. And love covers all of it. There's 10 commandments. Uh, and then, you know, stealing, and murder are considered sin. It doesn't have a level, but love covers it. So to me, love is the ultimate key. But the niche of it is, if you don't love yourself, you can. It, it's 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 too hard to even try to implement it on anyone else. You have to love yourself. You got to fall in love with self. You got to enjoy self. You got to um, uh, educate self on everything dealing with love. Push yourself to the extreme of loving yourself, learning everything about you. And I promise you, I promise you, it will definitely help loving anyone else. That's four and five. Amen. 
Amen. Yes, you can't go wrong with love because, you know, if you read the whole Bible, it comes down to God's love. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mr. Foreman. Tell us how people can learn more about One Blood, Movement of the Unity, and the other things that you're doing. Oh man, go to One Blood, uh, One Blood Unity, One Blood Unity Mentorship dot com, and and then you can also follow me on One Blood M O U Facebook page, and that's Instagram as well. Uh, if you go to Google and just type in One Blood M O U, which is Movement of Unity, you will find all my social media. You will find my website and everything that I actually do. In the community uh, that I'm blessed to do, I say I don't take no credit. God gets all the glory. I just get the victory. Um, but that's how you find me. Thank you so much, and we are so glad that you can be found. Yes, it's good. It's good to be on Earth. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, all I can say is that it is important that. We talk about race now, that every voice is important. Every comment, every perspective is useful. When I reflect on life experiences with race and other challenging issues, I advise us to seek balance, particularly regarding our attitude. How we approach determines our quality of life. So much of today's news is negative because the sensational stories get the airtime. But when I look around and evaluate my day, more good happens than bad. Quiet satisfaction is underrated. Yet, Seeing life as half full uh, that rather than half empty does matter. I appeal to Black Americans particularly. Appreciate the homeland that you were born into and understand why so many people risk their lives just to experience. Thank you for joining us. To learn more, visit letstalkracenow.com and subscribe to Let's Talk Race Now YouTube channel.